So welcome back to Joffe Woodwinds. And today uh, I'm very honored to have a special guest with us, uh, a lady who has established herself uh, certainly over the last 17 years with the Boston Symphony as one of our truly great principal flute players, but also in recent years, equally as important as an advocate and as a champion of women's rights uh, and uh, gender equity. And we're gonna get into all of these areas during our interview. So I'd like to, for you to meet uh, the wonderful Elizabeth Rowe. Elizabeth, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. Well, thank you for, for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, and it's one I've, I've uh, thought about for a while and uh, I'm so glad that we were able to finally uh, put our schedules together and make this happen. Um, certainly, as I've talked to you uh, prior to this interview, uh, you've uh, now established yourself over this last 17 years, as I mentioned, as one of our great principal flute players, but much in the tradition of the great principal flutists of the BSO of past, uh, Georges Laurent, and Dorio Anthony Dwyer, who both had long tenures uh, with that orchestra. I think Laurent was there about 34 years, and Dorio, I believe, was 38 years. Mm -hmm. long time. So you're just getting started at 17. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it speaks to the great uh, tradition of the Boston Symphony and also the artistry uh, of the symphony. And, and certainly this is one of the uh, always considered one of our uh, major five orchestras in the country. And so, uh, you know, your position carries with it, obviously, not only a lot of responsibility, but also a lot of exposure, and which has also allowed you to bring to the forefront some of these uh, very important subject matters and questions that you have uh, been courageous enough to deal with. And so I certainly want to get into that as we move it through our interview. Um, but I think just to begin, I'd like to get a little bit of background. I think people would be interested in knowing uh, about, you know, where you grew up, how you came to music, and certainly your collegiate studies. I know you're from Eugene, Oregon. And uh, so how does a girl growing up in Eugene, Oregon, decide at seven years old to begin studying flute? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I will tell you the story that my family tells. And, you know, I feel as if I remember it very clearly, but I think that's because we've just repeated the story so many times. But yeah. um, my parents are both uh, music lovers, not professional musicians. They're professors, but not uh, not music uh, professionals. But there was a lot of classical music being performed in the house on the record player and specifically a lot of opera. And um, I'm the oldest of three girls. And the story is that when I was about five years old, I really began to identify the sound of the flute on these recordings as something that I truly loved and that I wanted to do. And I asked if I could play the flute when I was five. And my parents thought it was just a little passing fancy. And I think they expected all of us would likely study an instrument at some point just as part of, you know, a well-rounded childhood, but didn't think much um, beyond that. But they, they saw that I had this interest. So they told me that if I was still interested in playing the flute when I was seven, then we could talk. So, <laughs> so they made so you wait two years. I had to wait two whole years, which I think at that wow. age feels like an eternity. And um, I still wanted to play the flute at age seven. And so it was, I was quite fortunate because um, I was able to start, you know, with private lessons at that age. And actually my early childhood was spent in, in, in Kansas. And so I was growing up in a, in a, a town in Kansas where, 
um, there was quite a bit of music education in the elementary schools. And so there was a, a band that I was part of by, I think something like third grade. And so, you know, I was, I was pretty well immersed in it early in my life, thanks to some, you know, private lessons, of course, but also the public school system there. That is uh, a hugely important uh, facet of um, education. I, I had I had a similar experience. I think, um, yeah, in fourth grade started playing, but that there was an orchestra. We actually had an orchestra in fifth and sixth grade yeah. that played. And I tell people this; they don't believe this. This is in the Northeast Bronx, <laughs> in a public school, of a lower middle class area, quite frankly. And we had a full orchestra of, I think it was 40 to 45 kids playing the music. In those days, it was new. So I'm dating myself to West Side Story. Oh. Uh, and we had a wonderful music teacher. Now, I'm, boy, I'm going back almost 60 years. Uh, and I still remember her name. Uh, she her, her maiden name was Mrs. Adolf. She got married in between fifth and sixth grade and became Mrs. Zaccaro. And she was a, a wonderful woman. And we had sectionals every week. We had two orchestra rehearsals a week. This is a regular public school. This is not a charter school or any, right. just, and that plus private lessons was a total turn on. And that part of the education in public schools, having bands, orchestra, uh, uh, choruses to join is, I think it's everything uh, in, 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 building music lovers for life. Um, so yeah, I, I certainly understand what you're, you're saying. It's, 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 it's the, that little extra push because private lessons alone, just playing alone after a while, unless you're a rare kid, it's probably not going to do it. Um, but playing with others in a band or an orchestra and getting up and playing concerts and getting applauded as a young person, you can't beat it, you know? You bet. So, so uh, who, were your early flute teachers flutists themselves? Because a lot of people study with uh, people who maybe don't play an instrument, but are, you know, jet musicians who teach a lot of different instruments. Yes. So my um, my earliest flute teacher was a flutist. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about it because I, um, you know, I had a, a, a decent amount of talent and I started with the Rubank uh, books. And so right. I sort of whizzed through Rubank volume one and volume two very quickly. And I was, you know, pretty hard worker. And I hit Rubang volume three and I don't know what grade I was in at that point or how long I'd been playing, but, um, and I slowed down because, you know, it was the key of B major and there were lots <laughs> of sharps and, you know, the hard things. And, uh, and my teacher at the time, I think thought that maybe I was getting a little lazy or it just, you know, got, a, it got a little intense and I started to kind of lose some of my just natural love of music. So my, my parents, um, I think saw that they saw that I was working hard, that I was flagging a little bit, not, not getting as much joy out of it. And they actually, they let me quit the flute and put me in piano lessons with a teacher whose specific assignment was to help me re regain my love of music. And she was also a flutist, but not as sort of high level of a flutist. So we did some piano, we did some flute, um, took the pressure off a little bit. During that time period, my family moved. And that's when we moved to Eugene, Oregon. Nice. And at that time, I was almost sort of self-studying the flute. I was playing, you know, the James Galway tunes that were all the rage. And I, I when we moved to Eugene, I 
auditioned for the Eugene Youth Orchestra and I played Brian Baru's March, which was one of the Galway sort of Irish tunes. Oh, that, okay. Yeah. And one of those penny whistle tunes. Yeah. And so I had this period of time where after a very kind of serious start and a lot of discipline, I kind of lost momentum a little bit. And my parents, I'm very appreciative that they were able to diagnose that correctly. And they saw that there was something that they wanted to preserve, which was my love of music. So they gave me a little bit of space to reconnect with that. And then once I moved to Eugene, got a really wonderful, very, very skilled private flute teacher there, um, then I was kind of off and running. So I had a little bit of a, a wobbly start. Right. Um, but you had started so young that probably by the time you're out of elementary school or at age 12 or 13, you're, you're in gear. Well, I was, I was, real, I, you know, on Brian Baru's March, I, I, I squeaked into the lower orchestra in Eugene. I was fourth flute out of four in the, ju <laughs> in the junior orchestra. <laughs> And, um, and that was the beginning of my orchestral career. So, <laughs> but, but did you, do you remember the feelings you had when you were playing in that orchestra? Was it some, cause I, I certainly remember first orchestra I was, I mean, it was just pure fun. I mean, I, I can't, I, there was no stress. There was, it was just fun. And, uh, did you feel I loved that it. way? Yeah. I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. And when I got older and I started to play in bigger orchestras like the All Northwest Orchestra and we, you know, playing Rachmaninoff Third Symphony. And, you know, I remember my youth orchestra, we played the, the last moment of Sibelius II. And I just thought I'd never heard anything more magnificent. And, you know, those kind of very, uh, I don't know, I just have such kind of a, a visceral memory of those early orchestral experiences yeah. and just getting swept away in the sound and that whole experience. Yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. And it's certainly something that has not been perpetuated throughout this country on a, I mean, there are certain areas and regions, certain towns that stress music more than others, but to expect uh, what I think certainly was common in New York when I grew up and sounds like the same thing in the Midwest with you to expect that that's going to be there. Um, I don't think we can take that for granted anymore because uh, one of the first things that are cut from programs when there are budget problems are phys ed and music. Yeah. You know, right off the bat. And, and what they're missing is the fact that it helps everything in life. It helps connect everything as we've seen during this pandemic, um, when we've been away from culture for 18 months or so. Um, so you obviously uh, you kept the, uh, the joy alive and, and uh, kept progressing, obviously. And at what point did you decide you wanted to get serious about music to the point of maybe majoring it in, in college? Uh, what, what sort of brought you to that uh, trend or to that level of thought? Yeah, I think that some of those early orchestral experiences that I had had really just lit something up in me. And I really just wanted to be an orchestral flute player from probably, I would say, early high school and started to take extra lessons with the principal flutist of the Oregon Symphony at the time. So I was living in Eugene. Uh, Oregon Symphony is located in Portland. It's like two, two and a half hours away. My parents would bring me up for occasional lessons with her. Um, and at about partway through high school, I felt like it was time for me to switch to study with her full time. I wanted to be more serious and I 
wanted to really apply myself towards going to music school, becoming an orchestral flutist. And she at the time didn't really take on high school age students, but she took me on and said, I think we had, a, we went for lunch. We had a, we had a very serious conversation about this where she said to me, I think you have the talent. I think you have the work ethic, but getting a job as an orchestral flutist is no guarantee. And that there are so few positions and that no matter how hard you work and how talented you are, she said, I want you to be prepared that you're going to have to support yourself by waitressing or doing something like that until you were 30. So you're spending your whole twenties waiting tables. And I said, sure, fine, no problem. And <laughs> Because I was 16 and I was yeah, like, I right. can do that. No big deal. The 10 years, 15 years later, how can you imagine it being, you know, difficult through that period? Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I I, didn't, of course, fully understand that, but the conversation did make a, a, a really important impression on me. And I, I think I entered into my, or at least I continued down that path with my eyes as wide open as they can be when you're 16 or, or so. So. Uh, so two things come. Uh, first of all, what was the name of this, uh, the teacher? Uh, who, who worked Her with? name was Dawn Weiss and she was the principal flutist of the Oregon Symphony. She's retired now, but she was the principal flutist of the Oregon Symphony right. for a long time. But it also sounds you like you had a really great support system at home that your parents were tuned into you and, you know, to drive someone two hours, two and a half hours, uh, every other week or how often to lessons. I mean, that's a good support system. And that brings to mind, you know, the, something I've talked about with some other uh, interviewees during the last several years is that it's, it's, it's not enough just to have the passion and desire. You really do need someone or, or, or both parents, if you're lucky or a relative or someone to really support you or to just be there. Um, uh, because at a certain point in time, you know, it becomes difficult or more difficult. And that's when it, that's when the support system has to kick in. Absolutely. And, and, and as I said earlier, I had two younger sisters and, you know, my parents were very busy with all three of us, you know, my two sisters were also serious musicians through high school. And so they had, you know, their pursuits as well. And so I think it was, um, it, it was a sacrifice for my family for sure. And, but something that they also, I think they saw the value. They saw the value in certainly in music as a hobby for children, and but and then I think they were a little concerned about the idea of me wanting to well, do it for a living. How are you going to earn your living? <laughs> exactly, and the idea actually, when I went off to college, initially my parents were really insistent that I get, a, I think, a DMA or a PhD of something you know to, to go on and get an advanced degree that would set me up for an academic career, um, right. which of course now that's equally competitive to get a, a, yeah, yes. a high, a high powered teaching job as a, as a right. flute professor, but right. that had been at least my parents' idea of what, well, they were, both, plan. they were both professors, as you said, right? Exactly. So, that, so that's natural for them to, to think in those terms. All right. So now you just, you know, you obviously have talent, you've been encouraged, but you go to USC which at that time, you know, uh, would be an unusual choice for someone destined for an orchestral career, especially on the level that you've achieved. Why not Curtis? Why not Juilliard, Oberlin, you know, uh, uh, Cleveland, uh, uh, Cincinnati, uh, you know, at that time, the, you know, the, the Eastman, the, the bigger schools, Peabody, why USC? 
Great question. Well, I didn't get into Curtis, so that's why not Curtis. Um, but um, the I did audition for a number of schools where, you know, my, my okay. teacher. Let me interrupt you there for a second. Yeah. For young players looking at this who might be auditioning for schools and Curtis only has maybe one opening a year, sometimes two if, if by some chance. This is a great example that one rejection does not ruin a career. If you love music and you have the talent and you've been told this, it doesn't mean it's the end of the line. I mean, I didn't know that about you, but that I think in itself is is, is even better than if you had made Curtis, because here you, you succeeded beyond, I mean, the highest level. And you went to a school that's, you know, a, a very fine school, but not a conservatory per se, uh, so I, I just want the young people who are watching that to, to keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was actually not, I was, Curtis was the only, I auditioned it and got into Oberlin. I, I forget where else I auditioned. I auditioned in a number of, of schools. I was concerned about going to a conservatory conservatory because I had a very strong academic background. I wanted to be in a more well-rounded environment. So um, I, what I did was I looked for teachers, flute teachers, who I knew were really outstanding flute teachers and applied to those schools, whatever they happened to be. So if it was a conservatory, great. But if it was not, if it was something that was part of a university or part of something um, a little bit more well-rounded, I saw that actually as a, as a plus. Um, I, I will have to say, fast forward a year or so, um, when I joined, when I went to USC, I'll tell you that story too, but when I went to USC, I had this idea that I was going to be in the music school and I was also going to take classes in the honors college and maybe I would get a double degree. And that went out the window after one semester because <laughs> that's hard. Um, but the reason I ended up at USC, first of all, Jim Walker, I had had a few lessons with him. He was the flute teacher at USC. I had had a couple of lessons with him at high school that were absolutely transformative. Uh, he had an important orchestral career. He played in the Pittsburgh Symphony and in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Um, he is this force of nature, this just compelling, charismatic, positive. He essentially has this ability to have an incredibly high standards and do it with kind of love and fierce, like positive belief in, in, in the student. So I had some experience with him. I got into a handful of schools. What tipped the balance for USC is that I got a full ride academic scholarship. And so, Not and those it. were very rare. <clears throat> yep. And again, I come from a family with, you know, we were, we were comfortable, but we didn't have excess money to, to, and, and especially with two other siblings who were going to join. Yeah, exactly. And so when I had these choices to make where I had a number of schools I could have gone to, but certainly as a flutist, they don't hand out buckets of money because there are so many of us and we are, you know, it's a highly competitive instrument. Um, and with that full ride. So I, I basically was able to go to school without, you know, taking out a, pen, a penny of debt, which is right. extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. And at the time making that decision, there was a piece of me that thought, oh gosh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't the most strategic way to, to become the best musician in the world, right? Like to maybe like making a decision because of financial reasons isn't the way that I should be doing this. 
but it's what was best for me and for my family. And in hindsight, I couldn't have made a better choice artistically and musically. There was no more perfect place for me to be as an undergrad, both to study with the teacher that I studied with and also to experience what it's like to be a, uh, essentially a gigging, freelancing, working musician in, in your undergrad, which is what's possible in, in that school and in that environment. It's very different from uh, a lot of the other more insulated kind of insular conservatory right. so, environments. So would, would, would uh, Jim Walker uh, throw you gigs or recommend you for gigs during those years? Uh, not as much that. It was more just that there is a huge... And especially at that time, there, there's a, a really vibrant kind of freelance scene for early professionals. There's an orchestra called the Debut Orchestra, which is a paid kind of early professional youth orchestra. There were lots of gigs that came about as part of that. I was the principal flutist of that orchestra for most of my undergrad. Um, I, you know, played extra with the Long Beach Symphony. I, you know, there were just, there so was a lot of So you were getting a lot of, of experience uh, yeah. that maybe a conservatory flutist who might not because they're being beaten up pretty heavily uh, to the point where, you know, they just have time to practice and that's it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also you're, you're in the LA area and LA certainly in those, I mean, still is, but certainly seventies, eighties, nineties, so vibrant, so much work, so much recording uh, freelance, uh, uh, very positive, musical place to uh, get your schooling. It is. And when, when I speak to musicians who are very oriented towards the East coast and, you know, the Juilliard and the Curtis and the, and, you know, grew up with the youth orchestras in Manhattan and all of that. I think the West coast seems like it's just another planet or it's just in a completely different musical universe. And, you know, there might be a little bit of truth to that in a certain way, but I think it's in a good way. You know, there's, it's a, it's a very innovative, scene there. Um, and certainly there, there were unbelievable traditions of pedagogy running through USC, you know, Heifetz taught there. And um, there, there, there were, there's a lot of history there and a lot of um, musical kind of depth and history, but that part of the country is newer and it just right. feels different than the the real history of the right. New England and, and, and East of course, Coast. today, today, so many of the uh, bigger universities known as liberal arts schools, Big Ten schools, the Southwest Conference schools, all of them that are huge schools with big football teams all have huge music departments. And many of the music schools are now conservatories as well. And so it would no longer uh, be such an odd choice. Uh, to, to go to uh, Rice University, to go to USC, UCLA, I mean, you know, Michigan, I mean, Texas, it, it, you know, it's, it's common. Uh, and they are offering scholarships to and vying for the same wonderful talent as Curtis in New England and Eastman and so forth and Oberlin. Um, but that's why I was curious why uh, at that time, which was sort of the infancy of uh, non-conservatories enlarging their programs and building their programs to that level. Uh, so that's interesting. Now, coming out of USC, it seemed from what I've read about you and little bit I know about you that you sort of immediately were able to sort of move into the, uh, moving up the ranks in the uh, orchestral scene. You went to the Fort Wayne Philharmonic uh, and then uh, Baltimore and the National Symphony year after year. So, without going too 
too much into depth. Uh, can you just take us through the, the evolution from uh, uh, graduating USC and moving into the professional world? Yeah, sure. I, you know, as we discussed earlier, I felt like I was kind of halfway a professional musician, certainly for the last couple of years of my undergrad. And I had begun uh, taking auditions for orchestras. And there, luckily, there were a handful that were local around the LA area. So I learned a lot of lessons, you know, about how to prepare about, um, you know, lots, I was sort of able to cut my teeth in some lower stakes auditions that didn't require buying a plane ticket and traveling all right. over the place. Now, now, was Jimmy Walker's pedagogy such, I mean, today you find schools offering master's degrees in just orchestral training, that just just preparing students with orchestral excerpts, not anything else. It's, it's quite amazing how things have uh, changed. But was Jimmy, go to, Jimmy Walker's pedagogy uh, such that he, he talked a great deal about orchestral playing, orchestral excerpts, in addition to the standard repertoire and etudes? You bet. Absolutely. That was, it was, it was um, woven into all of our work. And, and regardless of whether we had aspirations to become orchestral musicians, it was a strong part of, of the school. And in fact, we, every semester we played a, a blind audition um, for, to, wow. to, to, for our seatings for the semester for within the orchestras at school. And it was a really wonderful experience because first of all, we had practice playing for an empty screen, which is a hard thing to do. Second of all, it really drove home the message that an audition measures a person's playing for five minutes at 2.47 PM on a Thursday. And you know, you end up at the top of the heap one semester and the next semester you kind of have a rotten day. You don't focus as well. You don't prepare the same. You're in the middle, end up back at the top. It was a really sure. valuable experience for us to understand both how to prepare and what it feels like to do that kind of process, but also to recognize that the outcome of any given audition is simply that, the outcome of that specific audition. It's not a big measurement about our inherent worth or our potential it might give us a lot of information about how we could do better the next time, but it was a really, I think, healthy environment to get to gain that perspective. So, so I had been doing that, and then I was taking actual professional auditions. And um, at the end of my undergrad, I won a position with the New World Symphony, which is the oh, kind of pre, yeah, pre professional yeah. orchestra, exactly with Michael Tilson Thomas there. So, I spent two years with that orchestra um, and surrounded by a lot of really driven, uh, highly talented young yes. musicians from, and taking auditions during that period of time. Uh, and then, so the first audition that I won, the first professional position that I won was for Principal Flute in Fort Wayne Philharmonic in Indiana and spent two years there. Felt like I needed to have some ways to challenge my playing to continue to grow. Uh, so I entered into a competition during that time in the course of preparing for that competition, the associate principal flute job at Baltimore Symphony opened up on very short notice with a very short window of time to prepare. And I really attribute my, the work that I was doing at the time for this competition for kind of put, raising my playing to a level where I could just jump into that audition, really feeling at the top of my game. So I ended up with that job in Baltimore, 
throughout all this story, I acquired a very wonderful husband who's a violinist and we kind of followed each other through these various positions. So he came with me to Baltimore and then he got a position with the National Symphony. So we were commuting for a period of time. Wow. So you you guys did three orchestras together. We did four. Well, we did. We met met at Tanglewood. We met at Tanglewood. Okay. In in the summer, we were New World Symphony together. We I got into the Fort Wayne Philharmonic. He then won the associate concert master job with that orchestra about six weeks later, which we hadn't tried. We hadn't planned for that. But when I got that principal job, I said, hey, there's the associate concert master job. Come on. He won that job. Um, I won the Baltimore job. He came with me to Baltimore, won a position with the National Symphony. And then I subsequently won a position with the National Symphony also. And then we thought, we're done rolling the dice. This is pretty amazing what we've accomplished. And we said, okay, we're not going to test the universe anymore. (laughs) We're going to stop and be really grateful for what we have, which was two great jobs in the National Symphony. And I was 29 and the Boston Symphony job opened up. And I wasn't actively considering looking for a new you know, a new, a new position because we were very lucky to have what we had. And, uh, but I also felt like I was a little bit too young to just turn down an opportunity like that. And and you also, and being a Tanglewood uh, during, uh, I don't know how many summers, but you had been, you had exposure to that symphony in a very direct way. And I think you were, you had been coached by Fenwick Smith at, at, as a young, so, I mean, it wasn't just, uh, you know, a big name symphony that you had no uh, relationship with. You, you you must have felt some some uh, pull, uh, obviously. I did, and I felt like of of the the major orchestras of the orchestras that would be a step up from where I was at the time. I felt like Boston was the one that I was the most suited for, um, and so it just it it felt like the right thing to do to take to take that audition and you know that position had been notoriously hard to fill there had been a series of auditions where it had not resulted in a higher there was a i think about a decade of time between when Dorio Dwyer retired and they hired Jacques right. Zone who's this really wonderful European flutist but there was a it was kind of a notorious position when I was growing up. It was famous for having had a, a woman in the chair and then it become became infamous for never being able to replace her with anybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I, I, was, I didn't realize when I was preparing for our interview that there were literally 14 years between the time Dorio retired and you were uh, awarded the position. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you said, Jacques Zoom was there for a number of years before he left, but uh, that's a really, uh, especially for the you know, top five orchestra, very unusual scenario. Um, so yeah, I, I, I imagine that uh, taking the audition must have been something you, uh, you would uh, want to do. But then again, you know, given the track record of those intervening years and the fact that there usually are hundreds of people sending in their resumes for a position such as that, uh, I mean, those are pretty extreme odds, regardless of how wonderful a player. <laughs> Oh, for sure. I think there were well over 300 people who sent in resumes for that particular audition. And in a way that was freeing because I I looked at it as a very personal project. I looked at it as my goal was to, and this is true for every audition, but in this case, I think because of precisely what you say, because 
I, my assumption was that they weren't going to hire anybody or, or, you know, I, I went in with very low, little expectation or little need to uh, do anything other than to really meet my own standards, to represent myself to my fullest. I worked really hard, but not from a sense of kind of desperation, or I just worked from a sense of wanting to, you know, I saw, I almost saw it, as, saw it as the culmination of my audition career, if that's such a thing. And um, I wanted to give it my all and to feel as though if I went back to the National Symphony, that I could do it feeling really great about having given my all to this particular opportunity to audition for Boston and then could ch- kind of close that chapter and make my life in Washington, D.C. Right. And then bingo. Bingo, right? <laughs> I mean, you just happened to land probably the most prestigious and most wonderful job. And I say that uh, on two levels. First of all, the Boston Symphony has is, is a well-endowed symphony with a great tradition and great support and having two magnificent, steady places to play. The, for me, the best sounding hall in America, Symphony Hall in Boston, and then Tanglewood in the summertime, besides the recordings or the tours uh, pre-pandemic. Um, but uh, having the opportunity to play with an orchestra built on the, that tradition uh, and in that hall uh, with those strings and with and with you know the magnificent principles throughout, I mean it's it's really like a, it's like a dream. Um, uh, and I've had the opportunity in freelance situations to go into Symphony Hall and play and. When I say it's it's the best sounding hall, that from my perspective, I, and I live in New York and played in Carnegie uh, a decent amount. Something about Symphony Hall, um, they knew how to build a hall over 120 some odd years ago. They knew something. <laughs> yeah, and there's and there's some magic in it too because you can't just reproduce it and get another one. They've tried, and and oh. I, I that was a piece of my audition experience here that was very powerful. I, you know, walking into that stage and I had never heard a concert in that hall. I, I knew the reputation of the hall uh, and I'd heard the orchestra out of Tanglewood, but. Um, it's a different it, ball game. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, especially when, when you're playing all by yourself and especially if you are a player who appreciates subtlety and nuance and delicacy and transparency. There's an opportunity in that acoustic to explore that side of the expressive range that is remarkable. And I had been playing in the Kennedy Center, which is enormous and quite dead. And and big. (laughs) Yes. And and so when I started to play on this stage in, in Symphony Hall and just immediately could feel what was available because of that acoustic and to, and to kind of see this world open up just in that instant of what I could do with my sound and with nuance and with subtlety. And in that, in that space, it was, it was just, it was very inspiring. And it's, it's, it's hard to get inspired in the middle of of an orchestral audition, but it just, it just what happened. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like every card just came together at the perfect time for you in that way. But, uh, talking about playing in a hall and how it can open up all of these possibilities in one's playing. Uh, let's just talk about what flute were you playing growing up? And and, and at that time, um, I, I know nothing about any of this. So it's news for me too. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and I have a, a, a great instrument story because um, so, you know, 
my family um, didn't have a lot of means and did, you know, we, they invested in my education in the most important ways, which is in my teacher teachers and in my, in my lessons. So at some point, I think in high school, I needed to upgrade my flute and I, we bought an old Haynes flute, which is a wonderful American, you know, oh, one yeah. of the best, you know, Haynes and Powell were sort of the two original American sure, flutes. Do you remember roughly what serial number, the period of that? I don't remember the serial number, but it was from the early 1970s. Okay. Um, and there was a shift in the, essentially the technology of how flutes were built and in the scale, in the intonation scale. And so this was before, this is a flute that hadn't. Right. Yeah, pre Cooper made that transition. Yeah, and so and I don't think it was a particularly exceptional instrument. It was the you know it was a professional level instrument, and so it 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 did what it needed to do, and it took me a fair ways. About my junior year in my undergrad, my teacher Jim Walker, who is the least of an instrument snob you will ever find in the world, he will pick up a, a, a you know piece of PVC pipe and play it as a flute and he'll be fine. Um, <laughs> he, he said to me, you've taken that flute farther than anybody could. You are battling it at this point, like to try to play in tune, to try it. I was so limited by what I could do expressively just to try to get the, the scale correct. Um, he said, you absolutely need a new flute. And I said, I have $50. <laughs> And he said, I think you should get a gold flute. And I said, $50. (laughs) And so that orchestra that I mentioned earlier, the debut orchestra that I was the principal flutist of this uh, kind of paid youth orchestra that was filled with college age or early professional musicians in Los Angeles was part of this umbrella organization called the Young Musicians Foundation. And I reached out to them and I said, hey, I, I don't know. I need, my teacher tells me I need an instrument. I have $50. Do you have any ideas? And to make a very, very long story short, they helped connect me with donors and with people in the LA uh, community who there was a few of them who had reached out a few years before that to the Young Musicians Foundation saying, we'd like to help a really worthy musician at some point, get an instrument or something, let us know if that opportunity arises. And so speaking of more planets lining up, I had a a group of them who came in, who helped me. Um, I, there was somebody at USC who was collecting old Hanes who really wanted to buy my old flute. I, 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 and at that time, the instrument that everybody was really interested in playing was a Brandon, um, which, and at that time there was something like a six or eight year wait list to get your hands on one. However, the piccolo player in the Los Angeles Philharmonic at that time is the name of Miles Zentner. Oh yeah. And he had gotten smart to this and he had, early on placed a standing order with Brandon for one flute a month. So he would get a flute in every month and then he'd turn around, he'd add 10% and he'd sell it to you. (laughs) Good deal for him. And the advantage to the person buying it is that you actually got to buy that specific instrument as opposed to whichever one came off the production line when your number came up. So I was collecting support from these really incredibly generous donors. I found somebody to buy my flute. I pulled together a few other things. I, in the meantime, was trying flutes that were coming into Miles Entner. Didn't like this one. Didn't like the next one. Didn't like the next one. Uh, A flute came in. The funding came in. I was $3,000 short. I called my aunt. 
And she loaned me the rest of the money, which I paid her back $50 a month for like years. I think until I got maybe my job in Baltimore Symphony, and then I was able to pay her back a little faster, but pulled it all together. And so I, I ended up with a 14 karat Brandon flute with silver keys. Um, and that was the instrument I played for college through every audition, through all of my professional career into the Boston symphony. It's what I won my audition for the Boston symphony playing. Um, wow. Nice story. It, it's still the instrument I play today with one change. Head joints. Head joint. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I joined the orchestra, um, I started at the same time that James Levine began as music director and he had a particular aesthetic about balance and sound that really favored the high voices. He liked a lot of high voices and always wanted more from the first violins, always wanted more from the trumpets, always wanted more from the high woodwinds. And I, I just couldn't play loud enough on, on my, on my setup. So um, I, again, because of unbelievable good fortune, got my hands on I knew the head joint that I wanted, which was a LaFan head joint, which is made by a European head joint maker. Very hard to find. You had to have the right connections to, to find them. I knew somebody who had had lessons with me in Washington, D.C., who was one of these connections who could get his hands on a LaFan. I called him. I said, help, I need a head joint. Can you somehow get me on the right list? And he said, I'll get you on the list. And in the meantime, I'll send you my head joint and you can play it. Oh, wow. So he sent me his. I switched onto that head joint in the middle of a run of the Rite of Spring, my first season with the ball with with the Boston Symphony. Played his head joint for six or eight weeks until <coughs> another one came in from Lafan. That's the one that I bought, and so that's what I play on now. So I have a platinum Lafan head joint oh, on my gold. I know it's ridiculous. It's so much metal. It's it's which, crazy. Which probably costs more than the Haynes flute that you initially bought. Oh, by by a factor of a few, yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's, that's something. So all through this time, as you're evolving as a flutist, getting jobs in various orchestras as principal, and then finally winning the BSO job, um, did you have any role models in the flute world besides someone like Jim Walker? I mean, just, you know, uh, from recordings or from hearing them live, were there any heroes, flute heroes that you had in addition to Jim Walker? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I have lots of flute players whom I really admired for different reasons. Um, and it, it, you know, I'm not a real like flute nerdy flutist. Like if you ask me about instruments, I'll tell you the story of my instrument, but I don't know a whole lot about, you know, I'm not, I don't sort of geek out in that way in the way that most of my colleagues do. Most of my flute player colleagues do. I have to ask them for help and advice about all <laughs> sorts of things. And so also in terms of listening, I find that I'm the most inspired by, and it's not that I don't have immense respect for flutists and phenomenal soloists and artists all all around, but I tend to be inspired by um, other instrumentalists and singers and, you know, pianists. And, um, and, and I often, to be honest, it, it, it's, it's one of these things that happens to me live performance. You know, um, I'll hear my principal wind player colleagues in the Boston Symphony constantly. I will hear somebody turn a phrase in a certain way and just think, oh, what, you know, what was that? Like, how did that, what was that magic? And that is something that I try to find some parallel 
something that I can do for myself, right? So it's like, if I hear Bill Hudgens do some extraordinary kind of buoyant articulation thing, I think, oh gosh, what is that? I want that. I, I, I need to be able to do that. Or if I hear a pianist do some just incredible, like liquid something. So I, I tend to kind of take inspiration in this more scattered right. way, little bits and pieces here and there. So it doesn't really answer your question terribly no, well, but that's how I, I mean, yeah. Some, some people are, you know, collectors of, I have to admit I am uh, like, you know, thousands of CDs and LPs and cassettes and the whole bit. And, um, and, and others not so, uh, you know, I've seen both and, and it depends on the individual, what works and, 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 and what uh, inspires. Um, but uh, you know, that, well, again, you are in, sitting in the middle of heaven, uh, you know, symphony hall and with principles like, you know, Bill and John Farello and mm. beautiful bassoon playing and, 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 and the most beautiful string section. I mean, and, you know, not, and no one overblows and, and everything carries and you can hear it back from the hall. I mean, that's heaven. <laughs> it's it's a very privileged spot to be in. I yeah. I will say that absolutely. And you know, also with playing with the chamber players, and we have guests that we play with. I I remember playing. You know, I've played the Poulenc Sextet so many times with so many great pianists and great woodwind colleagues, and you know, played with Jean Yves Chiboudet, which was you know extraordinary. But also played it with Andre Previn, and oh. there talk about having a kind of a sensibility about music that's hard to put your finger on, but you really want to know how to do it. And there, there was this kind of jazz blues kind of, there was something that he was able to bring to that, that I still can't fully articulate, but to be in the presence of that and to be able to experience that is, it's, it's just extraordinary. Do yeah. you listen to other styles of music for yourself, for your own enjoyment, uh, uh, other than we mentioned classical music and uh, orchestral music and opera growing up? Uh, uh, do you find yourself uh, interested in other styles of music as well? Yeah, I mean, I say I would I would say I appreciate it. Um, I I tend to do most of, you know, it's it's rather boring, but I listen to lots of talking. I listen to podcasts and I'm interested in thinking and I'm interested in ideas and I love interviews. I love, um, you know, so, so I think my, my listening time is people used to say what, what classical stations you listen to on the way into work. And I used to say NPR, but NPR news, you know? <laughs> and um, so, you know, I have a, I think my, my, my listening, you know, if I walk my, my dog in the morning, I tend to be listening to an interview or something like that rather than additional music. I mean, I love Dolly Parton. I love, um, I, you know, I, I love lots of kind of maybe would say pop or, you know, less sort of, um, you know, I guess maybe popular is the right, is the right expression for it. I love Broadway. I love, you know, I love, I love lo lots of different kinds of music, but um, most of my listening is yeah. away from the musical genre in general. Right. Right. Now, as I sort of inferred earlier, the BSO obviously is is has got a very full schedule, and now that uh, we're we're all back and, and trying to uh, resume a normal season, as as you guys have begun, plus you have the Boston Symphony Chamber Players and Tanglewood, uh, and incredible recordings that we we have to talk about in a little bit. Uh, but 
how do you go about on a daily basis preparing yourself or keeping yourself in the type of shape that you need to be in, in the position that you're in? Yeah. And, you know, that the answer for me has shifted tremendously over these 17 years that I've been in the orchestra. When I first joined the orchestra, the, the volume of repertoire and the speed at which it came at us, especially a Tanglewood season where we play three distinct, complete, you know, heavy hitting performances every week. We'll do Mahler one night and Shostakovich the next to Brahms. And then the next week it's Strauss. And then it's, you know, Mozart. And it's, you know, it was two or three different conductors. Oh, absolutely. And for eight weeks straight. And um, the, the, all the other orchestras that I had played in up until now would have these kind of lighter weeks. It would be a, a youth concert week or a kind of a pops-ish kind of a week, or there, there were these, you know, maybe one week out of the month was just not as substantive. And here it's all substance. Um, and it took many years and many seasons for me to start to feel like the majority of the repertoire that was on the schedule was repertoire that I felt like I had a grip on, <laughs> you know, right. so early, early years, I was really, um, you know, head down, preparing, looking months ahead, trying to keep track of what was coming. And I still, to this day, have, I keep with me a list of upcoming repertoire for the season because it can sneak up on you. And um, certain pieces that are especially difficult, I like to have a kind of a long runway to to get them ready um, so that I don't feel like I'm cramming or yeah. um, scrambling. So that said, at this point in my career, I feel like more important than, or more necessary than, you know, learning the repertoire or familiarizing myself with it is just keeping my playing in really optimal shape. So that's, that's more of what I do now is um, like focused on that. Maintenance, maintenance type of maintenance. Part. Yeah. And, and actually it was, you know, this, the, the pandemic was very interesting for me because um, you had said earlier that, you know, we don't overblow and we don't force in the orchestra. That's our goal. <laughs> I not only speak for myself, but I will say that it is easy to force and it's easy to push when you're surrounded by that volume of sound, especially as a flutist where we aren't the loudest instrument necessarily, unless we're really up in the high, high register. But um, so during this period of the pandemic, when we were either not playing or we were playing with a reduced size ensemble, we were playing without an audience present. It gave me an opportunity to kind of collect my sound back kind of a little bit and to notice when I maybe was forcing or was overplaying or was pushing a little too much. So a lot of my maintaining my playing right now is almost about helping me remember that like to stay in my, to stay in my zone, like to stay in my, in the sweet spot of my sound instead of pushing past it. And so it's less about having to like do a lot of grueling kind of uh, strengthening or maintaining stamina. And it's more about preserving what I have. Right. Got it. And, and do you, do you resort, go back to things like Taffanel Gobert or Moise exercises or things of that nature to sort of hone that feeling? There are these, I carry in my bag these Moise um, 24 Petite Melodies. Oh, sure. That are the simplest things. I have my third grade handwriting in that book. My flute, my <laughs> first flute teacher gave me or had me buy that book. And um, 
you know, and it's the cover has been taped a, a million times. And yeah. um, I like my eight-year-old big instructions, like don't accent, you know, <laughs> uh, working on legato at age eight. Um, but, and they are these very, very, very simple melodies and they, to play them well is about the hardest thing on the planet. And so for me, when I'm doing unhealthy things in my playing, if I pick out one of those little, very simple melodies, it right. helps me find myself pretty, pretty quickly. So that, that's kind of my go-to. And I do love, I do love a melody. I'm a, I'm a first flutist. So I love a melody and um, yeah. you know, they, I, they really call to my, to my heart for my flute students, I would basically say, if I could just hand them a piece of paper that says, use your air well, I could just leave. And just, if they could just do that, then my, my work is done. But of course it's easy to say and hard to, to do. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sports maniac and uh, golfer hacker, but I love to read about it and learn about it. And I was just um, reading a book uh, by an Aust- a very famous Australian golfer who had the most beautiful swing name, Steve Elkington. And he, his whole first chapter is about just the grip, just holding the, the, the club correctly and, and how that is the essential thing. I mean, it's sort of the parallel to as a wind player. You know, it's the, it's the thing that we know we have to produce wind, but it's at the essence of everything we do. And it, it, that fundamental, that primary fundamental is, is so often disregarded or we want to forget about it. We don't want to have to deal with it, but we have to deal with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And when the air is doing the right thing, everything else goes easily. And, but yet everything else tends to obscure the fact that we're not using our air well. So we, when we're not using our air well, we use all sorts of other things to try to fix the problem, except for the one thing that will really kind of get yeah, to the heart of it. it. So, and it's, right. I think it's a universal, it's a universal there's something about it that it's 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 so obvious yet we all forget it all the time and so it's just obviously it's something that we all need to yeah reacquaint re- ourselves. I find with. as I've gotten older, I that's the thing that has suffered most uh, is the, not only the amount of air I'm taking in, but using it wisely, uh, expeditiously, taking more breaths, uh, perhaps, um, uh, and you know, trying to do more aerobic stuff, trying to you know swim a little bit more, you know, just anything to help along things that in my twenties and thirties, even forties, never had to think about. But I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> and, as well, uh, I as a flute player, I believe in taking lots of breaths, like we have to. So we're we just you know you just the I always say to to people that there's no such thing as a good breath. You know, they say, can I breathe here or should I breathe here? Is this the right place to breathe? And I said you can breathe anywhere you want if you do it well and the breathing in the right place, but not breathing, not doing it skillfully is, is not successful either. So it's really about the, and so especially for flute players to, to, to develop that skill to breathe and have it be integrated into the music because we just simply can't play for the long lines that a clarinetist can or the oboist can. Especially oboe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Before I leave, the musical aspect of things. I, I also just want to put a little plug in for the fact that when we're talking about Symphony Hall, that over the last five years, uh, the BSO has probably recorded more works than any other major uh, U.S. orchestra for sure. And and, we'll, and I'm going to uh, uh, show them, display them during uh, the interview uh, or maybe at the end. But 
complete set of Brahms symphonies, almost the complete Shostakovich now. I, and the thing about it is that they're all, they're recorded in the best recording studio in America, Symphony Hall Live. And uh, for those who have not purchased any of these uh, CDs, I can guarantee you it's the finest quality of, uh, besides the musical uh, intent and, and, and uh, interpretation, just the quality of the audio is magnificent. I mean, I don't think there could be a studio in the world that could you could replicate what you guys produce uh, in Symphony Hall. Uh, it's really some, it's special, and um, you know that's a plug from a New Yorker. And this is after the Red Sox beat the Yankees, so that says a lot. <laughs> it's very big of you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, one just one final question: playing in the BSO, uh, the Chamber Players, uh, which mm -hmm. is a wonderful uh, group that has recorded extensively. Do you find yourself making any conscious adjustments different from playing uh, principal in the orchestra when you're playing in a much smaller situation? Uh, not necessarily about equipment, because I think we sort of covered that. But I mean, as far as your approach to uh, articulation, dynamics, um, even, you know, recording in a smaller group as opposed to an orchestra, you know, the mics might be a little closer, things of that nature. I mean, do you make any conscious changes in your approach when you're playing with the chamber players? Yeah, you know, in in, in general, in performance, um, not so much because I do feel like so much of what we do in the context of the orchestra is really chamber music-like. And there's such an orientation amongst the 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 principal players you know, that's one of the beautiful things, traditions, I think, of this orchestra is that there is a, and part, partly made possible by the acoustic of our hall, is that we can play with that, that kind of connection and, and both acoustic connection and intentional musical connection with each other that feels like chamber music in the context of the orchestra. I will say that recording with the chamber players can be very um, challenging. And especially as a flutist, I think microphone settings are challenging. You know, our sound kind of comes together a little farther away. Yes. There's a lot of hiss and kind of crumbly stuff up close. Right. So I, this is something that I still think about and I don't have enough experience recording chamber music to have learned how much I need to kind of, pull my sound together differently for those microphones. Um, but I do, I, I should, um, that I think to achieve an optimal sounding recording in the chamber group, I need to use a, a little more focused sound, a little bit less spacious because, you know, when I play in symphony halls, part of the orchestra, I'm playing for the, the audience. I'm not playing for the microphone. Right. Um, and when we make recordings with the chamber players, those are more in an actual studio kind of environment. There's not a mic, there's not an audience. When I'm, when we're making recordings with the orchestra, I can't think about the fact that we're making a recording. I mean, I do <laughs> makes me nervous, but I can't 
trying to change my playing because right. we're making a recording because there's an audience and it's, I trust that the microphones are capturing kind of the totality of that. Um, in those chamber music recordings, it's a little bit, it's a little different and it's still an open question in my mind. Um, but I think the answer is that ideally I would make a little bit of a shift in my playing, clean it up a little bit, pull it together a little bit more for those microphones. Right. Um, I'm still learning. Yeah, it, it is. An, I, you know, uh, I remember uh, reading about and and I even asked Julie Baker one time because I know in the 1950s he had bought a whole recording little studio into his apartment in Manhattan and bought microphones and was experimenting with it uh, because he was doing a lot of recording dates as well. Um, and this is prior to uh, uh, him being awarded the principal position of the Philharmonic. He was very active as a freelancer. So he was trying to figure out, you know, what works for recording, what doesn't, and, and experimenting with that quite a bit. Uh, so it is, a, it is a different world, and more so, I think, for flute than perhaps any other woodwind because of the fact that you have to lose some air in order to produce the sound. And for close miking, uh, like you said, that's where the problem hits. And so it, 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 it's, it's a very different thing. I don't know if clarinet players or oboists, bassoonists, saxophonists think in those terms quite as much uh, because the reeds in the mouth. Um, and that's where it initiates the sound, but the flute sound initiates outside the mouth and hence the problem. So it's, uh, it, it is interesting. That's why I asked that question. I was, I was curious. Um, so if you don't mind, I'd like to shift gears now to another area that you've been involved with. And certainly all of us in the music community know of your uh, situation uh, where you uh, brought suit against the BSO because, uh, as you discovered, you weren't being paid, certainly, uh, the salary that some of your peers and principal chairs were. And uh, this is not something that is new or that was unique to your situation, it's something that sort of has gone on for forever. Um, and uh, directly having to do uh, with the fact that uh, you're a woman and it's, it's a clearly a gender discrimination scenario, but that was always under the table. It was kept covert. Um, and uh, you had the courage to do this in a, in, in a position that would have had to have attracted attention and, and you uh, barreled through that. So I know it was settled uh, in arbitration uh, in 2019 uh, as much as you can talk about it and how it affected you and what um, gave you the strength and courage to go ahead and pursue that um, approach because you certainly, you, and, and let's also be honest, you were the, uh, one of the people who were the face of the BSO. You were on every promo for them. Uh, and this has, in addition to your playing, I mean, it's clear they wanted to show you up front. You were one of the, I think, two principal uh, females in the orchestra. Um, and one of the few uh, few principal flutists uh, in this country. I think when I, I looked through the, uh, the top tier 15 orchestras, there were three uh, ladies who were principal flutes, which you'd say, well, it's 20%, but the amount of uh, female flute players majoring in school and phenomenal players, it, there's something a little off there that doesn't quite balance. Um, so... With all that being said, what gave you the courage? What what finally you said? I can't accept this. What what was it that finally you said put you you put yourself out there? Because you put yourself in a position that could have 
perhaps endangered your position? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is so important just in thinking about this issue broadly is that, you know, I, I think there are many, many women who are not able to raise this issue because they don't have what I have, which is a tenured, unionized, salaried job. So if you, we look at women in other industries, women, other women musicians in who are in other you know, lines of, of work in less privileged positions in who have less of that kind of structural support. Um, oh. It's, it's, it's very different. And so, you know, as I speak with other women, especially outside of the, the music industry who say to me today, they say, you know, um, what would it be like, you know, when they're talking about their own experiences and their own challenges and trying to address this within their own industry or where, you know, they're, some women are able to take a stand um, at and absorb the risk. Some women, there is immense risk and cost to them. And, you know, I think it's a very, it's a very, it's both a personal decision for each individual person, but also there are structural safeguards for some of us that don't exist for others. So I think in terms of our industry in general and going forward, it, you know, this really, my hope is that this, asks all of us just to, to stop for a minute and just take a look at kind of all the traditions and the practices that we've carried forward, many of which are good and valuable and so important. If you talk about musical traditions and if you talk about preserving some of these great historical ways of being and ways of, um, you know, just our art form in general. Yeah. And then there are habits practices, this is just how it's done, this is how right. it's always been, kinds of things where I think it's worth examining. And so I think one of the things that's an opportunity for us as an industry in general is to just stop and ask some questions. And and in order to answer the questions, we have to have information. And so there's where I think there's a big challenge right now for the orchestral world is that most of our um, contracts are private. Um, most orchestras don't have a a philosophy or a stance about transparency. Um, most orchestras haven't yet tried to figure out how to transition from that old model into something that has a little, that can stand up, that can withstand scrutiny. And I think it's not an easy fix necessarily. And there's not, it's certainly something that is going to require a transition, just like anything else. Like right. change is hard. Right. Reshaping a new way forward is complicated. Um, and None of that happens if we're not willing to just name it and shine a light on it. So I think that's where still we have a lot of work to do, just even in those beginning stages in our in our field, is to start to just simply identify, shine a light on what's currently kind of the, the practices that we have all kind of gotten accustomed to, and then ask ourselves, do we believe in this going forward? Is this really what we want to take a stand for, or do we want to actually think about maybe a better way? And I think that extends well beyond compensation and gender, I think it extends to, you know, programming and how do we preserve um, all the history and traditions of the great kind of European history of classical music and recognize that we've also have a lot of room to open our minds and broaden our programming and think about different kinds of repertoire and all of that. So I think we're at this kind of inflection point in the industry where we aren't quite yet ready to or fully committed to 
opening our eyes entirely to what's happening, but it's, it's beginning. So to the extent that I nudged us in that direction, I I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah. And uh, you know, I I got to thinking when you were uh, answering this question earlier, you know, similar, it's just because we had mentioned baseball, we're in the playoffs now, but baseball went through a radical change in the 1970s with Kurt Flood a question the idea of being attached to a team for life or until they decided that he had no freedom. And basically his lawsuit and his work helped bring about free agency, which spread to every other sport. Uh, and certainly in the music industry, we have an uneven uh, set of uh, contracts and set of standards. Uh, I've worked on Broadway for many decades, I'm still alive. And um, uh, we have it very well spelled out what one gets when one has a chair in a Broadway show. If you play more than one instrument, if you're playing certain instruments, like a lead trumpet gets a little more, if you're an assistant conductor, I mean, everything is laid out in contract. That took many years to happen, but it, it, it's been in vogue for quite a few decades uh, now, uh, quite a few. In the jazz world, <clears throat> no such thing. Different people get different amounts depending on their drawing power or their record company they're associated with. It's, it's like the Wild West. There is no rhyme or reason. Every, everyone is basically a free agent negotiating for themselves. So being a musician in the United States today, uh, it depends on the genre you're in. If you're an orchestral player, what size of your orchestra? Are you a regional orchestra, a major five orchestra? Uh, are you you a pickup orchestra? Are you freelance? Are you doing a union job? I mean, we, we really uh, have to educate ourselves as musicians. Uh, and that's one of the things the schools need to do better in understanding the parameters in front of us, because it's vastly different uh, depending on, you know, your orientation as a musician and who you're being employed by. Um, but yep. yeah, but there's no question that you brought attention to this uh, and you've sort of become a heroine in that regard. Uh, and uh, But it's also led you, uh, interestingly enough, into looking uh, beyond the performing end of music into a, sort of a corollary field, it seems, where now you're not only an advocate uh, in this regard, but you've begun coaching and mentoring other people uh, orchestral players. I mean, you just concluded what I understand is called uh, your tenure team uh, project. Uh, and that you also have on Facebook uh, a, uh, a group that you work with called, Se and you titled Seeing Beyond the Notes. Uh, so can you talk about how, you know, going through this uh, process uh, with your lawsuit has sort of moved you into a, a completely new realm? Yeah, it's been, you know, it's it's interesting because it, like so many things, there's not really a clean demarcation between kind of before and after times. But, you know, I, I part of what has happened to me in the last few years is um, as a result of my more increased visibility and meeting a lot of different people, having really interesting conversations with folks in our industry, but also outside of our industry, uh, started to help me see that I, I really have always very much enjoyed thinking about, talking about, learning about the parts of our lives and both professional lives and away from the, the professional lives too, but that 
that make up the totality of who we are. And so for many, many years, I've had flute students, but I've also worked with Tanglewood fellows who were at this particular time in life, you know, it's that kind of time in your usually mid twenties and all these things are kind of coming together at once. You've got professional aspirations and you've got personal life is maybe coming into focus, you know, so the story of my husband and me, right. Trying to negotiate a relationship and two music careers and all of that. And I, I became increasingly clear that the work that I had been doing all along for decades that was most meaningful to me and that I actually felt like was having the most impact was not so much specifically about how to play the flute or how to play music or how to be a musician, but more about how to be a human being who is a musician and how to thrive and how to figure out how to make that work and also how to navigate the professional world. So things about how to have conversations with people, how to negotiate um, difficult professional relationships, how to advocate for yourself, certainly for pay, but also in other ways and how to be a good colleague, how, you know, all those questions. And so I, the, my group on Facebook called seeing beyond the notes was actually a pandemic project. That was when I was, you know, the world stopped, all performances stopped. And I thought to myself, well, where do I put my, my energy? Where do I put my passion? Where do I put all of what, what do I do? (laughs) And, um, with the help of, of um, somebody that I had been working with, a coach that I had been working with, she helped me figure out, okay, this particular line of work that I'd been doing with these young musicians was very, very satisfying to me. And I saw a real need for that. So I essentially created this group. I didn't know anything about Facebook when this, when I started this whole thing, but it's a, it's a private group, meaning that not anybody can get in and it's limited really to early professional musicians. So I keep like the big famous teachers out. I keep out, you know, the, the people that make it hard for these younger players to speak openly about what they're confronting and dealing with. And, and it's just, as, and, and these aren't just flute players. No, no, no. There's hundreds of them in there and they're all instruments. Um, and it's, we talk about things that are balance of things like everything from practical stuff, audition preparation, working with a tuner, how to craft your resume, that kind of stuff. But then a lot of stuff about um, how to have a conversation. What is the difference between confidence and, you know, do you have to be confident in order to, do you have to feel confident in order to play with confidence? Um, How do you navigate being a newly hired principal player who's young and you have very seasoned people (laughs) sitting next to you who maybe you have to do the both. And you have to say, I really respect you and acknowledge your decades of experience and wisdom. And I need to figure out a way to also lead. How do I negotiate that and, and navigate anyone, that? You of anyone had that experience with Fenwick Smith when you got in a magnificent person, a magnificent player, uh, uh, someone who actually had mended you at one time. So, I mean, you come, you, you can really speak to that with uh, real life experience. You bet. And I also think there's a real need in our industry for people in my position to come out and say, I get scared. I get nervous. I make mistakes. I don't know what I'm doing all the time. Um, I have regrets. I have things that make me embarrassed. I have things that I'm proud of. I, you know, to break down some of that, that 
the stigma. Yeah. And I think it's easy to put somebody like me on a pedestal, which doesn't serve the younger players, but it also doesn't serve me because it, it's a very fragile place to be up on a pedestal. Right. And you have one little slip and all of a sudden you're no longer on that pedestal. And so I think it's much healthier to have a, a more complete picture of all of us, each other as human beings. And so that was kind of my mission with that group was to create a space where they could air out some of these thoughts, worries, ideas, frustrations, challenges. And I could also model like a more experienced person, but who isn't pretending that they know everything or that they're perfect or any of that. And to try to create that. So that's been a a little bit of a labor of love for me just to have that project. And then I, I also, in the course of working with a lot of these players over again, decades have helped and supported and counseled a lot of musicians who had very difficult uh, tenure processes in the orchestra. My tenure process with the Boston symphony was challenging. It was hard and um, wanting to provide some more support, some more, again, shining a light on it, shining a light on the ways in which that process can be corrupt. It can be um, almost like a hazing, you know, there, there's so many aspects of it that are very hard. Um, And, there's a lot of dredgement and shame around it. People don't want to talk about struggling. They don't want to show any weakness and there's not often a safe space to do that. So trying to break down some of these kind of old world ways of, you know, yeah, we, we toughen you up and you're going to we'll beat you up for a while. And if you're still standing by the time it's over, then well, welcome to the club. It, it brings up, I mean, a number of questions, uh, thoughts here. Um, I taught in higher education, quote unquote, for about 27 years. And uh, they, the tenure process, everyone is well acquainted with in academia. Generally, you know, you don't piss off anybody, you bring more people in and you publish. That's sort of the, you know, as you know, for ha- coming from a family of professors. And uh, you, you maintain relevance and that's sort of the basis for continuing tenure. But tenure in an orchestra, what schools talk about that in preparing? What, uh, you know, what do schools talk about? Well, what, like you said, once you get the gig, even if you're not in a principal chair, you're in a second chair, you're in a, uh, you're sitting in the vi- back of the violin section. How do you behave? What should you say? What shouldn't you, even more important, what shouldn't you say? Um, how, how do you dress? How do you prepare to come for rehearsals? All, I mean, these are things that you learn uh, when you're on the fly and you're doing the gig, but uh, with the way jobs are as precious as they are, as few as they are now that pay a livable wage, the competition is enormous. So it seems to me that the schools uh, need to do much more than just prepare one for winning an audition by playing, that you have to prepare for sustaining the gig and holding the gig, because that's as, sometimes as difficult as winning the job. You bet. Absolutely. And then I would take it even a step further and say that, you know, as as privileged as we are, those of us with tenured orchestra jobs, we are also tend to be a pretty unhappy bunch. You know, there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of wishing for more artistic autonomy. There's a lot. Of, there's just it's, you know, it's it's you, it's almost it's kind of hard to come out even and say it because we're so lucky to have what we have. It's sort and of human nature. It's human nature. Yeah. And so it's like to get the audition is one thing to get tenure is another thing. And then to also figure out how to learn how to be on the job in a way that can make you happy, that can contribute in a positive way that keeps it in balance in your own life in such a way that 
you don't need it to be everything. And I think that's part of what has gone wrong sometimes in the way we teach young musicians is that we hold up this idea of like the job. And if you get the job, then everything will be okay. Everything will be great. And so either you don't ever get the job and you feel somehow as if you will never, it will, you will never be happy or you will never have succeeded, which is it ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Or you get the job and then you wake up and you say, well, but, but I'm not magically like happy and this didn't all just fix everything. And so now what, or I sort of forgot to like have the rest of my life for the last 20 years or whatever. And so here I am, don't really know how to do all these other things. And now I got to figure that out. And so for me, I'm really interested in having this conversation that's kind of more three-dimensional around that whole, around all of that and just kind of speaking about it in a way that wasn't spoken about when I was coming up. I think younger musicians now are much more thoughtful and more aware of a lot of this than certainly I was, but um, there's a lot of room still to have a, a, a bigger conversation and to make more space for people to have lots of different kinds of lives that look different and all are yeah. valid. I think I just from my end uh, of dealing in the music business, I think you're right. Younger players are a little more business savvy, uh, uh, certainly than I was of my generation in general, maybe because there is less work, because there are fewer orchestras. I mean, everything is a little bit more tentative. You, you, you know, it's it's different world culturally. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about you and, and this um, interview uh, over the last several weeks because I, I uh, as mentioned earlier, I'm a sports nut and I'm reading the, uh, the biography of Roger Federer, which just came out and it's called The Master. And, you know, like everyone else, enamored of Roger Federer, not only his playing, but the way he represents himself. And in reading uh, this biography, I was pretty astonished to find out he, Roger Federer was not Roger Federer. In other words, he didn't behave quite the way we see him now. He wasn't that person. But what he did have, which changed him and helped him mature and uh, raised him as a, you know, in, in his human endeavors besides tennis, was the fact that he had an incredible support system early on in his teen years when it was recognized that he clearly had incredible talent. But uh, when we're talking about a support system for a young tennis player, we're talking about a sports psychologist, a coach dealing with the actual tennis abilities, mm -hmm. uh, a dietitian, uh, being you know cooks, people preparing food, uh, people taking care of, of every detail of his life uh, so that he could evolve. And what you're doing is sort of setting that stage, it seems to me, uh, in this case for orchestral musicians, uh, to have that type of well-rounded support system. It's sort of the beginning of that. And um, unless someone is signed as a, basically we have to say, pretty much a pop artist, you're signed to Concord Records, Columbia Records, you know, where they're given everything like that. 99.9% .9 of the musicians, professional musicians, don't have any of that. And uh, sports uh, personalities and sports, uh, young sports uh, players in any sport with talent do have that now available to them. You could be the number 200 ranked tennis player and you're going to have a support system, not like Federer's, but you're going to have a coach and you'll probably have someone who's going to be your chiropractor or your, your masseuse or that, at least that. 
we have none of that in music. We don't have our, I mean, we end up going to psychologists. Uh, <laughs> That's but, right. We, but we don't have one designated for us. We don't have our dietitian. Right. We don't have our masseuse after a stressful concert or rehearsal. I mean, we, you know, people laying out, okay, we're going to pick up your bags and take them, you know, not when you're on tour. But I mean, all of that stuff, none of that exists. And yet we are performers. And certainly in your position, you're under the same stress and spotlight uh, as a Federer would be or as a Tiger Woods might be. Uh, so it's interesting. I, I mean, just the confluence of reading this book and, and knowing we had this interview coming up, I started thinking, you know, Jesus, uh, I had never thought that maybe we on certain levels should have this provided for us. Of course, who's going to do that? Uh, but um, but it, it does bring to mind the fact that the, how little support there is for the performing musician. Uh, and yet we're performers. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And I think there's something that is so inherently vulnerable about what we do because we are doing this. It's like the craft and the art together. And it's, you know, the craft is so important, you know, doing playing at a level of excellence, like executing well. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about breathing well. Do you breathe well? Do you, you know, all of that. So there's that whole craft piece. And then there's the whole artistic piece, which requires the craft to really, you know, bring it to its highest level. But there's also a personal element that's vulnerable. It's like, how do I want this to sound? And I'm putting myself out there. And when somebody doesn't like it, when a conductor it tries to completely reshape what it is that you're doing. There's, it feels personal and we take it personally. We feel it personally. And so I think it's also, there's that layer too of, and I'm sure athletes experience that. And yet I think there's also a, a little bit of a deeper level of vulnerability with what we do because we have, we choose our own voice. We choose to express ourselves in a certain way and put ourselves out there and you might love it. You might hate it, you know, and at some point we have to kind of, we have to withstand that. And, and I think that that is also really hard for musicians and it's hard to learn how to kind of withstand that and then still remain willing to put your, you know, put yourself out there without kind of shutting down and becoming right. cautious and, and really guarded. And still maintain a love for the art and for playing. You bet. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I remember having a course in college and the book was titled music and art <laughs> and basically the music represented the industry and the art represented the pure music making and when those two intertwine which doesn't often happen but when it intertwines it's great but it's the i guess the point is what you're doing now in in this uh, second career in a sense is uh beginning the uh, uh laying the seeds and the foundation for that type of support uh, that hopefully will catch on uh, with other orchestras and other aspects of the industry. Um, but uh, one thing is for sure, uh, as you sort of inferred, we do need a union and we have to, uh, it's very important. I, I was just um, corresponding with Paul Edmund Davies, wonderful flutist, uh, mm -hmm. has a great website, simplyflute.org. And, uh, he was talking about the fact how little uh, musicians and orchestras over in England earn and that many of them have to have two and three jobs and and uh, there's very little protection. Um, yeah. So 
you know, as much problems as we might have with the, with a union or a situation, we really do need that. And, uh, um, you know, certainly uh, help us protect us. But maybe now the unions can also be a source of providing that support for the musicians uh, as well as I see little things here in New York uh, where there are little uh, sessions and uh, group meetings and discussions and professionals coming in to give consultations. And I think that's what's going to have to be uh, broadened uh, in the foreseeable future, uh, because the stress levels are not going down. <laughs> no. Well, I always say, you know, musicians are people, too. <laughs> like we, right. we are actually people like we we are, you know, we're we are performers, but we're also human human beings. And we right. have, you know, we have strengths and weaknesses and we have you know, things that come easy to us and things that we really struggle with. And just like every right. other human being on the planet and right. our job is not to, our job is not to show that to the audience necessarily, but yet it, it's there. And so we, you know, yeah. we have to, well, we, have, we face yeah. it one way or the other. Yeah. Well, it's sort of the typical um, reply or answer you get when someone says, well, what do you do for a living? I'm a musician. Oh, that must be so much fun. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 It's like, that why it must be great having a living where all you're doing is playing music and you know rollicking. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it sort of goes along with that trend of thought. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's great to have spent this time with you, Elizabeth, and and also to, to tell others that you know the symphony's back. Uh, Boston Symphony's in full gear with a great program. For those of us in New York, they come to New York uh, very regularly, once every couple of months. And, I, and as I will plug in the text accompanying this interview, the amount of wonderful recordings that are now out available through the BSO.org site, but also on Amazon, no problem getting uh, the CDs and, and recordings of the Boston Symphony and Boston Chamber Players. Uh, and they're absolutely wonderful. And uh, I couldn't recommend them more. And I'm not just saying that because you're here or because Bill Hudgens is a friend. Uh, it really is is a gift, um, the quality of the, these recordings and the level of interpretation. So uh, thank you for that. And of course, thank you for taking the time to share, your, you know, about your life and your profession and, and your, you know, your endeavors now. And um, we'll look for many, many more years. You have a lot of more years, you know, to catch up <laughs> to Dorio. So that's the great thing. <laughs> that's Those are big shoes to fill for sure. Yeah. Uh, but thank you. And, uh, you know, continued good health now with, uh, you know, hopefully this pandemic we're bringing to the end and uh, look forward to hearing you in New York and up at Tanglewood live. So thanks so much. Oh, thank you for the great conversation. It was really fun. And um, um, it's, it's such a service that you're doing to to be holding these conversations. So thank you well, for that. I hope, I hope it helps, you know, and, 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 and not only that, it will inspire mm -hmm. because, um, we need that, you know, uh, we need uh, to hear from great artists and to, uh, like you say, know that they're just like us, they're normal human beings, they have the same feelings and, and desires. And, um, and also for young players that, you know, what the path that you led through to get to your position, it's possible, you know, it, it, it's just that you, you know, you have to keep going at it. And, you know, and there are sacrifices like you made in order to buy your first uh, the Brandon Cooper that carried has carried you so well. Um, you know, you have to make sacrifices, but if you really love it, in spite of all the stuff that you might encounter, the negativity here and there, um, it can be pretty rewarding. So absolutely.
Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you. All right. Stay well. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.